Hi, I'm Mac. Hi, I'm Abigail. And this is Unsubs. podcast where we recap, rate, and review all 324 episodes of Criminal Minds. And today we're talking Season 5, Episode 18. We're getting kind of close to the end. I was like, oh wait, we're almost done with this season. Yes. Um, I don't know the name of this. I think it's called The Fight. It is called The Fight. Yes. Oh my god, guys. It's the weird ass crossover episode (laughs) i oh god okay yes yes um well we'll get there we'll we'll get let's be gentle to ourselves here's here's my fun fact i want to talk about michael kelly all right oh my god so michael kelly as we learn later plays jonathan prophet sims oh my god and he also played a character in the first season of house of cards who i just could not stand i could not deal with this character this is a really good actor so he plays doug stamper in uh, house of cards and um, my husband, because I really like hated Doug Stamper so much, my husband thought it would be funny to take a picture of Michael Kelly and put that as my contact information in his phone. And it was like that for like at least six months, maybe a year. So every time I called him, it showed up where it was just Doug Stamper. And uh, I guess that's not very funny. It is weird. It is something that my husband did do. But there you have it. That's my fun fact. I'm sorry. Michael, come on the podcast. My fun fact is this is like a realization that I had this week. Is like, you know how they're like, don't give in to peer pressure and do drugs. Don't drink because your friends are peer pressuring you. I think I realized something that I have been peer pressured more in my life to do. Well, you should just change your car's oil yourself. Sorry, no, what? Like, because <laughs> I like. <laughs> I'm a I- mechanic? Yeah, like I mentioned in passing to a couple people recently that I need to um, get an oil change for my car. Like the light came on this week um, and I was like, oh, God, like I need to go to the mechanic. And the amount of people who are like, oh, well, do you know how to do it yourself? You should just do it yourself. It's so easy. And I'm like, do I look like I have time? Or the motivation to learn how to change my own car's oil. And, like, thankfully I mentioned it at work this morning. And this one, like, person who was there was like, I mean, it's not hard, but it's very messy. And I just, it makes me, like, I'm like, listen, I, I know that cars and the car industry and everything is deeply sexist. But, like, this is a moment where I'm okay with it. Like, (laughs) 
Like, you don't, don't expect me to know how to change my own cars. I feel you on that one. I mean, like, previously I had talked about, like, you know, how I, lo- I lost my old car. With my old car, I whenever I would get an oil change, I would take it in because I was like, there's always things going wrong with this car. At least I want them looking at it and making And they found all, one time I took it for an oil change and they were like, you're blah, blah, blah. We'll catch on fire. And I was like, oh, that's a problem. You know, I never learned either. I do know that, like, it's not too difficult to do. And the products are kind of expensive if you buy them up front, but then they last for a long time. But if you're not confident with it, I mean, it costs like 20 bucks. Just take it to your mechanic. And if you have an older car, it's good good to bring your car in every, like, six months or whatever it is. I don't know. I just, the amount of peer pressure, people are like, well, you should, it's so easy. You should, I'm like, no, I, let me spend my money the willy nilly ways I want to. Like, <laughs> girl, I think we have to talk about criminal mind suspect behavior. So criminal mind suspect behavior is one of the spinoff shows they did for criminal minds. It's the unsuccessful one that they canceled after a season. It's not the one with our king, Daniel Henny, or however you say his name. I know you thirsty girls on Instagram be loving him, and I love him too. He's not in this one, okay? So we're going to talk shit about it. I'm just going to read the little blurb. Forrest Whitaker, who we love, stars in Criminal Minds spinoff as Special Agent Sam Cooper, a fierce leader who is not afraid to risk his career in order to stand by his convictions and bring dangerous criminals to justice. Cooper tries to avoid political bureaucracy by handpicking an an eclectic group of profilers to work outside the confines of Quantico. Eclectic meaning one of them is British. Former British soldier Mick Rawson is a highly skilled marksman with an undiluted eye for rooting out evil. Former convict Jonathan Prophet Sims. (laughs) The prophet has spoken. I don't know what. God, it killed. Why did they do this? Why did they do this? This was this was the f- single reason why this show was unsuccessful is because they tried to make profit a thing. This show is just the definition of the male gaze. I'm sorry, profit. Why are they calling him Prophet? I they think it's cute. It's not cute. We don't have any nicknames in the main show. Why would you th- and it's uh, Are you saying that baby girl is not a nickname? Her name is Penelope Garcia and they don't say, "Oh, baby girl has delivered." And I'm like, <laughs> "Penelope baby girl Garcia." It's the fact that they go, the prophet has delivered, or the prophet has arrived. It fucking sends me. I'm like, this is so embarrassing. Forrest Whitaker is an incredible actor. Why Why are you making him do this? Michael Kelly isn't even comfortable with this happening, and you had to rope him into this bullshit. Okay, anyways, let's get back to prophet. 
John Prophet Sims has a calm, zen-like presence and wants to make amends for past sins. If our Patreon ever hops up, pops off, we should cover this show. <laughs> oh my god, yes. Also, like... Wait, there's one more. Okay, yeah, the girl. Rounding out the team is Gina LaSalle, an attractive... God, that's literally what it says. An attractive agent armed with a cunning sense of perception. She used her eyes a lot. She's eclectic because she's attractive. That, like, reminds me of, like, a lot of the casting calls from, like, even just, like, ten years ago where it was, like, men, he's a lone wolf, blah, 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 and for women, she's hot, like... (laughs) Oh, man, someone get Michael Kelly out of there. This is our podcast where we shit talk Criminal Minds spinoffs. Listen, I'm going to tell you about our rating criteria because we got to start the show. And also, like, I've been thinking, like, if you just come in, like, this is your first episode, we should also be saying something about, like, our deep dives. So we rate that, we recap the episode, we we rate the episode, and then we bring in, like, a deep dive that's related to the episode where we talk a little bit about something that maybe inspired the episode. Something that's relevant to the episode. Something relevant that's true, because this is a fictional recap podcast. That's what I'm trying to say. You know what? It's a good thing I don't have to talk. So... This is your first time. Welcome. Tell your friends. The rating criteria. We rate each episode on a scale of 0 to 100. We have five different categories. Each category can score 20 points. The categories are criminal slash serial killer, character development slash character arcs, forensic slash context, script writing, and background characters. Okay, disclaimers, we are in no way, shape, or form associated with Criminal Minds or any of the content therein. We're just fans. Oh, can we give um, Jonathan Prophet Sims, like, special music whenever, like, he's around? We'll just, like, play, or, like, a sound effect. Oh, this is what it'll sound like. Yay! All right, be forewarned. This is what they call the backdoor pilot to Criminal Minds suspect behavior. I'm assuming when they say backdoor pilot is like they created this episode and then they and then they went and created like the one standalone season of Criminal Minds suspect behavior. So this is like kind of the pilot but kind of not. Especially because Garcia is in the spinoff series. This is the first time we ever see any of these characters interact on Criminal Minds. So it's a crossover episode, sort of. So this episode opens with a helicopter helicoptering. Someone radios in and says a body has been found in Presidio Park, which is in San Francisco. We learn that this body is a white man in his 30s who's been badly beaten but was killed with a single gunshot wound to the head. The local police officers arrive and they're like, well, and they're like, gotta call the FBI. It's starting again. 
We see this man and his teenage daughter. At first, I thought it was like something real shady going on between them. I did not realize it was a father and daughter dynamic. Um, too much Lolita content for me. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> so they're they're walking up the hill and they're having a bit of like an argument. You hungry? You want to grab something? Don't try and act like you care. I just want to know if you're hungry. No, I'm not hungry. Not the enemy, Jane. Of course not. My friends are, right? And David? You're 14. It's too young to go on dates. Especially as a boy who's already driving. Mom thinks you work too much. What does that have to do with anything? It's not my fault that you two don't get along. I'm not saying it is. No, you're just trying to ship me off. Your mom and I love you. Don't even. Okay. You want to be treated like an adult, fine. Let's have an adult conversation. At the top of the hill is like a silhouette of a man, and he is just looming. But as they are having this conversation, the man who's looming on the hill is there and is just like standing like really weirdly close to them with his back to them. And he's like, I wonder what's going on with all of those helicopters. And and the father kind of like curtly dismisses him and is like, we were like, you know, we're trying to have a conversation here. And the man is like, well, I wasn't even talking to you. I was talking to Jane. And so mean daddy is like, how do you know my daughter's name? And the stranger is like, you're not in charge here. And dad is like, Jane, run ahead. But the stranger's like, no, and just pulls out a gun. And he tells the dad to come quiet or you both die. Ugh, the unsub is hot. I'm sorry. I'm trash. Put me in the circular file. But he's hot. (laughs) God, one of these days, I'm just going to make a list of all of the episodes where I'm like, the unsub is hot. And, uh, you know. How many episodes of Criminal Minds are there? There are 324, and I would say, like, a a solid... You've said that for maybe 310. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, yeah. And, like, when they're not hot, I'm a little disappointed because the personality and entrepreneurial ship is on point, especially with the eyes have it where I'm like, damn, that man does it all, but he's not my type. Girl, he's got a business and a house in this economy. He wasn't paying his rent. So now we cut and we're at what looks to be like a gym of sorts. Uh, there are men fighting with one another, but it's friendly sparring. And while the when there's music playing and we see that it's Washington, D.C., baby. And Hotch just walks on in his suit as everyone else is like, you know, working out you never were one for offices medical condition i'm allergic to bureaucracy thanks for coming guys sir i don't have long we're leaving on a case i know san francisco i hear things so what's going on how much you know about this case you're working i'm on my way in to look at the files i'll give you a preview and he says he is allergic to bureaucracy it's his character development no, it's his entire personality. I love you, Forrest Whitaker. You're amazing. Uh, but uh, this is not it. Hodge and Cooper talk about the case. Apparently, Hoop. Wow. 
I almost said Hooper, and I was like, is it their ship name? Um, like, Hoyette. Oh, my God. Oosh. Oh, man, I got a little sweaty. I, it might be shirts off for, tits off for Gideon right now. Oh, my goodness. Gotta pour one out for Hoyette. No, we don't, and we shouldn't. Two years ago, a dead male turned up in Presidio Park. Massive amount of blunt force trauma. Defensive wounds, single gunshot to the back of the head. And over the next three days, three more Vicks, same amount. Then after that, there was nothing. Till exactly one year later, same thing. Dead male, badly beaten, shot execution style, followed by three more Vicks over the next three days. And then nothing until last night. One year later, exactly. Which means we have three days before the trail goes cold again. Why all the interest? I got a theory. I think there are parallel murders linked to these cases. Two years ago, one day after those murders stopped, a single dad and his 15-year-old brunette daughter found dead in their car. Last year, again, one day after the dead male stopped showing up, same thing, another dad and his brunette daughter. And you think it's all connected? I think it's a hell of a coincidence, don't you? And you want me to bring your team in on the case? And you only have three days. I mean, you don't have time to go chase an angle like this one. So my team works the bodies in Presidio Park while your team tests the theory about the fathers and daughters. And if I'm right, both halves of the case helps all the other half. And you already asked the director and she said no. She is not strong at thinking outside the box. You ignore her order and you're wrong. You're done. I'm telling you, Hodge. Right now, there's a father and there's a daughter and they're missing and no one is looking for them. Hodge and Cooper talk about the case, and apparently Cooper is familiar with this case, and the BAU is about to, like, fly out and look into it. But then Cooper does what I think is, like, a cancelable offense. I see that he starts calling all the victims the Vicks. Oh, my God. Like, I was just like, my dude, we can't be doing that. For three days, they would find these bodies, and then it just went cold, which means that the BAU has approximately three more days to solve this case before the murderer stops murdering. The Vic stop vicar- vickering. The Vic stop vicking. Now we see Father and Jane from before, and they're chained to, like, pipes in this weird building. It looks like they're inside in, like, abandoned gym of sorts. There's a lot of gym visibility in this episode. <laughs> There's a lot of gym visibility. What? It's like, Two yeah. gyms in a row? Lots of opportunities for sweat. Lots of opportunities to be moist. The unsub from before, like, comes over to the father and Jane and, like, caresses her face. And he says it is simple. Give her to me, and both of you will live. I said get away from her. What the hell do you want? Simple. You give her to me. You both live. Go to hell. That's your answer. Which I just heard, ew. Ew, ew, ew. Dad's like, go to hell. And so the unsub is like, mm, okay, and just walks away, which I'm like, mm, that doesn't bode well. <laughs> so on the BAU jet, hey girl, the team talks about the Vic tomology. <laughs> um, 
Stop! Why are you so funny right now? (laughs) (laughs) This is in the Tenderloin District, and Reed shares how there was, like, a lot of homelessness and, like, transient individuals. So this unsub is choosing, quote, easy victims that, quote, won't be missed, which I hate when they say that. Yeah. Um, Because it just seems to be such a clear, like, devaluing of human life. But I understand, like, what they're trying to say is that it's not someone that you'd be like, oh, Phil didn't show up to work today. Like, that kind of thing. What do we know about the past year's victims? The Tenderloin District is a high concentration of drug addicts and homeless people. All the victims have been transients. So this unsub's choosing easy targets that won't be missed. He's not concerned with the challenge of the hunt. All these victims are part of a larger plan. Which he executes in the same few days every year. Reed, did you find any significance to the dates? Nothing historical. It's got to be personal for the unsub. JJ, you and Reed head to San Francisco PD. Rusty and Prentice to the dump site. Morgan and I will go to the coroner's office. Nobody should expect to get a lot of sleep for the next three days. What about Cooper's team? You said he had a theory. He believes that whoever's murdering these homeless men is also abducting fathers and daughters and killing them once the transients are disposed of. So then we'll investigate the dead men and his team can see if there is a missing father and daughter. Why isn't his team on the jet now? Because the director wouldn't authorize them joining the investigation. They're working against the director's orders? We need to concentrate on the dead men abducted from the Tenderloin. Cooper's team can help determine if there's a missing father and daughter and whether it's connected to our case. Or you could get in serious hot water if the director thinks you're helping to defy her. No, Hotch is right. I've known Sam Cooper for 20 years and I've never seen him defy an order. If he feels this strong about a hunch, we need to help him however we can. We also learn that Cooper's team has not been authorized to work with the BAU on this, so they are technically going against orders now we get to see Cooper, and we get to see this ridiculous, like, little sound as, like, the letters crop up on the screen, and we get these introduction introductions of everyone on his team. So we get the Sam Cooper, Supervisory Special Agent, BAU Team Leader, and then we get Jonathan Prophet Sims. Yay! And I was like, he looks like he's this team's Garcia because he's setting up all of the computers. But we later learn that's not the case because I guess Garcia is unofficially a part of their team as well. I guess because there's only one FBI technical analyst. And then there's Mick Rawson. But don't worry, guys. There's also a woman. Gina Lasalle, supervisory special agent, but it doesn't matter because she's the hot woman. This group starts getting to work and trying to figure out who this father-daughter duo could be, and they're going to start by like looking into schools. Trying to get out of the heavy lifting, eh? Actually, I'm setting up a two-way ILMB with a 500 megawatt transmitter and single-polarity LMB, both operating in the KU band. She brushes past him and his teasing smirk fades. What did she just say to me? At least we blessed with a nice setup. How'd you hook it up? I know a guy who knows a guy who knows a slumlord who gave us a great deal. So, how do we conjure victims of a crime that might not have been committed out of thin air in a major American city? San Francisco has a population of 800,000. Half of those are males. Just start with the females. Only 45% of the population is white. So what does that leave? 360,000. That gets us to 180,000. Check school absences. 
Narrow that to girls 13 to 18, then narrow it again to brunettes. Find their father's names and check their workplaces. Who hasn't shown up? Well, okay. If you want to show off about it. So now Prentice and Rossi are in Presidio Park. Uh, apparently, this unsub dumps the bodies away from the paths. So he must be at least, like, vaguely familiar with the area. He also must be strong enough to carry the bodies. So the local police tells them that the victims were all homeless. And, like, maybe he lured them in somehow. There's a very serious homelessness problem in California, and I was just there, and it was just terrible. Uh, You know, and we can stick some homelessness resources in our episode notes. Obviously this episode is just again, being very shitty about these different lifestyles that are not just like the typical lifestyles people live. And we're not here to, you know, do a a big critique on the way this show is treating homeless people, but it is shitty and we will drop some resources and homeless people are people too. And we should be just kinder. At the morgue, Morgan and Hotch look at one of the park victims. It looks like he was able to throw in a few punches himself before dying because it looks like he was in a fight. However, the weird thing is that he died execution style with a bullet in his head. So they're like, why was there a fight if you just died by gun? Now back with the unsub and father-daughter, we see that the dad is now in an abandoned pool. The father is instructed to take handcuffs off of a random guy who was chained to the ladder in the pool. So the unsub tells him the rules. You win, you live, you lose. I kill your daughter, and I kill you. Understand? Sometimes I feel like people in our society, in our society are like, I can't believe that, like, we do these things, we watch these things, like, especially, like, not to bring it, I don't want to talk about this, but, like, especially with, like, the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial, any sort of, like, big public thing where things are awful, and I'm like, you do know that we are the same species that, like, excitedly watch gladiator fights, right? We are inquisitive by nature, which like all animals are. And we like want to know what's going on. We want to check it out. You know, like we just we just want to be involved. We have FOMO as a species. (laughs) Just because something that we are engaging in or watching or just observing isn't like nice and pretty doesn't mean that it's wrong for us to be interested, you know? Yeah, and us watching it doesn't mean that it's like, that we're having a judgment about it, that it's one way or another. It just or condoning it necessarily. Yeah. But it's like, we are the same species that watched gladiator fights for, for a long, hot minute. So just just reminding people of that. This kind of premise, like, I always love those kind of, like, games. Like, we're we're horror movie fanatics. We love that shit. But it just falls so flat. It's not, like, I, I don't know what it is, why it's not good. I blame it on the prophet. I blame it on the prophet. Yay! 
How dare you say that, Michael Kelly, my beloved. I blame it on that whole group, though. I feel like if they weren't trying to, like, ram in this whole other, like, spinoff show, this could have been really cool. Yeah, I mean, this could have been so creepy, too. Like, everything about it is is so creepy and uncomfortable and so high stakes. But, like, we get, like, five minutes total of the unsub doing his Vic thing. And then, like, 15 minutes of Jonathan Prophet Sims. Yay! Basically, we set up this gladiator fight. And they start fighting each other. And it is ridiculous. The father wins, and then the unsub shoots the transient man dead. The team continues to try to identify and locate the father and daughter duo, and the prophet is able to find the identity of the father and daughter, and they call Hodge to let him know. Yay! This is Jane McBride. She's 14. She didn't show up for school yesterday or this morning. The deck? Ben. He hasn't been in his contracted company for the last two days. I love this guy. And the prophet speaks? Yes. Yes. Hotch and Cooper go to the McBride house. Jane lives with her mother and her mother and father are divorced. When they get to the drawer, Jane's mother freaks out. Father's name is Ben. Apparently she got a phone call and the guy on the phone was like, if you bring the police into this case, I will kill Ben and Jane. And if you want proof, go check your front porch. And on the porch is a tape of a guy sitting tied to a chair getting shot. That's the first victim from the park. The man on the phone said he'd kill Ben and Jane if I brought in the police. He said that if I needed proof, I should check my front porch. And when I did, this was there. Well, he's careful. Nothing to distinguish him or his location. Were there any other instructions? No, he said he'd call with more. Do you think he's watching? I mean, is he going to kill them? The video was shot by a camera on a tripod, which means he probably doesn't have a partner. It'd be almost impossible for him to take your family prisoner and do surveillance simultaneously. And he's done this before. So why didn't someone come forward after to say what happened? He doesn't leave anybody with knowledge alive. Hodge points out that the video that she was sent was filmed on a tripod, so it may not actually be very likely this unsub has any sort of partners. If it's a tripod, there's no one else there, which means that he doesn't have, like, another body to spare with, like, surveying her. Actually, that's, like, a really good point. I like that. So Cooper and Hodge have a conversation. Wait, 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 wait. Hooper has a conversation. (laughs) Hotch and Cooper, or Koch, have a conversation. (laughs) That's disgusting. I'm sorry. I gotta, I'm gonna post a a little poll really quick to the Instagram and just ask them which they prefer. Hotch gets a phone call, and guess what, guys? They found another body. So Prentice and Mick meet, and they kind of flirt, and it's fine. She's a lesbian. She's supposed to be a lesbian, and they didn't let her be a lesbian, so it just feels forced now. Yeah, yeah. So how does a Brit... A handsome Brit? How does a Brit end up in the FBI? It's pretty simple. Cooper and I bumped into each other a few times. Ten months ago, they told him he could handpick a new team. He called, I came. Passport didn't matter. Huh. 
So, is it true that no one in the British Special Forces is allowed to admit they're in it? I don't know. I'd have to ask around about that one. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of rumors about your boss. Yeah? One I heard was when he left the BAU, he was doing psychological ops overseas. Well, I've never been big on rumors. So I don't suppose you're going to tell me just where you two bumped into each other? I'll tell you, I trust the man with my life. I tell you, I'd die for the man. So they examine the body, and Mick notices that he has, like, some skin under his nails. And the first one had scratches on his chest, so perhaps, maybe perhaps, they're fighting each other. And the Brit is able to somehow deduct really fast that they're fighting each other, and it's, like, a plan, and the loser is executed. And I was like, okay... Rossi and the Prophet go to San Quentin. Yay! We learn the Prophet knows people in San Quentin because, gentle listener, the Prophet used to be a convict in San Quentin. He talks to a friend of his and tells him about the murders. Then the Prophet and Rossi kind of present the profile to this friend of the Prophet's in San Quentin. Prophet returns. What up, man? How you doing? It's Nelson G. Me and him know each other from back in the dark days. Damn. Never expect I'd ever see you in here again. This is Agent David Rossi, FBI. FBI? First time I see you in how long and you bring the FBI? Get the hell out of here. Told you, man. I ever got my shot of redemption, I was going to take my game to the other side. To open the blind eye. To take the prisoner out to prison and then this... And then sit in darkness out of the prison house. Makes sense, I guess. Criminals are the ones who make the rules, right? Cops are the ones who gotta learn them. I need your help, man. Let's talk. We have a serial killer. We think he might have done time here. We want to give you a description, and then you tell us if you recognize him. It's profile time. Yeah, it's profile time. This unsub, it's very likely that he has a prison record, just like Jonathan Prophet Sims. Yay! He's white and maybe in his 30s. Considering the terrain of where he is dumping the bodies, he's probably very fit. He also has access to a space that is large enough to house and control a number of prisoners without alerting neighbors. He keeps the same hunting ground and same dump site. He is a control freak who's very organized. He would have been obsessed with the guards while in prison and their methods and how they controlled prisoners, especially in the yards. He kills people the same few days every year. He probably has a daughter of his own, and she's probably a brunette just like Jane. The dates he chooses probably correspond and involve his daughter. He likely lost his daughter in some way, and this event likely involves his own daughter. He lost his daughter, and the way he abducts and forces people to do gladiator is probably symbolic of how he lost his daughter in his mind. A lot of times, killers choose victims that are surrogates from someone, like a wife or a mother. In this case, it is believed that it is his own guilt that is making him choose surrogates that represent himself. The BAU and Cooper's team take to the streets of the Tenderloin District because 
Cooper thinks profilers should be out in the streets looking for potential Vicks and also the unsub. So Prentice and Mick are assigned to the job. They send Mick up to the rooftop because, you know, that's his thing. So, what are you wearing? A gun. Hey, Mick, explain something to me. How come I'm out on the street and you're sitting on your butt on some roof? Well, you heard the man. Do you really want me to expound on my own prowess? It's undignified. Mick's gotta get on a roof. Like, that. let Mick do his thing on a roof. He's like, I, I just gotta be on a roof. And Prentice is like, why are you on a roof? And he's like, it's where I belong. And they're like, yeah, see, it's, it's where he belongs. And I'm like, this is so fucking stupid. He spots a guy walking from the roof and Prentice goes chasing after the guy. And it's this really dramatic little chase sequence. But after she catches him, it's the wrong guy. But now, Daddy is fighting in the pool again, and he's getting pretty beat up. Wins, he beats the other guy, and the unsub starts taunting, saying how, you know, Jane is better off with him rather than the dad. The unsub is like, you know what? To the death. Or Jane dies, insinuating that now Dad doesn't have to only just beat and knock the other guy out. He has to kill him. Cut back to San Quentin. The prophet's friend has a name for the BAU. He tells the prophet and Rossi about John Vincent Bell, who matches the profile of the unsub. And guess what? Gentle listener, John Vincent Bell is the unsub. We have a name. A John Vincent Bell. One of the girls who died was named Mandy Bell. Garcia, run the name John Vincent Bell against the family therapy list. Uh, Shazam. Bell and his wife divorced, then the wife died, and Bell was declared incompetent to have custody of the daughter due to a host of mental health issues. They got that one right. Oh, Lord. And then when social service agents showed up to remove the girl, Bell beat one of them to death and was given seven years for manslaughter. Yeah, during which time his daughter was in a car accident. It looks like she survived three days on life support, but eventually died of brain injuries. Okay, so Bell is making these men fight to the death just like he did. He's trying to prove he did what any father would do. Do we have an address? Uh, the only listing I have is a gym on Hall Street in the Tenderloin. It belongs to Bell's family. It hasn't been operational for years. We got him. There was an address in his family, which is the address of a gym that belonged to, like, his dad, to his side of the family. John Vincent Bell starts talking to the, to Jane and her dad, saying, like, you know, if Jane comes with me, you'll both live. And she starts being like, you know, actually, I will go with you. And she's saying, like, you know, my dad's a liar. He's not great. I don't love him. Uh, Obviously, she's lying. Yes, yes. She's like, but first, I need to know that you're also not a liar. And you're not going to hurt my dad if I go with you. So he takes her away and leaves Ben alone. But Ben is still alive. BAU and the cops all start, like, zooming over to the gym, and it's so dramatic. They find Ben chained up, and he tells them that Belle just took Jane, like, just mere moments ago. Belle and Jane are running through the streets of the Tenderloin District, and he's trying to bring her somewhere else. Again, we don't know where he's trying to bring her, but the chopper with Cooper in it spots them, and Cooper is convinced that bell is gonna go to the top of the building he's like he's either gonna go high or burrow down because it's uh yeah because there's nowhere to go yeah 
So the team corners him on the roof of a building and he has like a gun to Jane's head and it's very tense. And he like pushes Jane away and then like jumps off the side of the building to his death. But JK, because Prentice rushes over to see, you know, if he landed and if he, whatever. But he like somehow like faked it because I guess there was like another level to the building right below. So he only fell a couple feet down. And so as she looks over, he like is holding the gun out to shoot her. But nope, British Mick saves the day and snipes him from across the way. So he's dead and Prentice is fine. Jane and her dad get reunited and it's wholesome. And then mom shows up and there's a big old grand group hug. Cooper and the BAU are all drinking beers together. And it's like one of the few times we see them having casual fun, I guess. And then Strauss calls and slap basically just like slaps Cooper on the wrist about the whole thing, but doesn't is like kind of like, you know, whatever. It's it's fine. Uh she tells Cooper and Hotch, Hooper or Koch, as as you like it, uh, that she's gonna read them the riot act. And I was like, is that really a thing? And I looked it up and it was a thing many, many years ago, and it's not anything now. And when people say that, they just mean that they're going to, like, discipline you or talk to you sternly. So that's the end of that truly questionable episode. So should I just do my deep dive? Yeah, just go for it. I wanted to talk about stand your ground laws because I was like, hey, this uh, victim literally murdered this guy like what what are the legal repercussions of this can he be like tried for this even though it was like under duress so i just wanted to share our stand your ground information a stand your ground law sometimes called line in in sand or a no duty to retreat law provides that people may use deadly force when they reasonably believe it to be necessary to defend against deadly force under such law, people have no duty to retreat before using deadly force in self-defense so long as they are in a place where they are lawfully present. And the exact details vary by jurisdiction. So there are 30 states in the U.S. where there is no duty to retreat. It's most of the states where if, if someone attacks you with deadly force, it does not matter where you are. You are allowed to kill them if you have to. There are 11 states that impose a duty to retreat when you can do so safely. However, they do not acknowledge this if you're in your home and someone attacks you. If someone comes into your home, you do not have a duty to retreat, even if you are in one of those states with duty to retreat. This is known as the Castle Doctrine. And these states are Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Nebraska, New Jersey, New York, and Rhode Island. Basically, if you're outside and someone comes at you with a gun, you are supposed to try to retreat before you attack them. And if you can't retreat, you can kill them. 
New York does not require retreat when one is threatened with a robbery, burglary, kidnapping, or sexual assault. Uh, there are only the spe- one specific state that does that. So if you are out on the streets and someone is trying to burglarize you, you are within your rights to kill them if they are using deadly force. Pennsylvania limits the no duty to retreat principle to situations when the defender is resisting attack with a deadly weapon. Washington, D.C. adopts a middle ground approach under the law, um, and it kind of lets the person decide where it is. It's, It's a little hazy. Wisconsin also does this. Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, and Nebraska, the duty to retreat also applies to a person's place of work. So if I'm at my job and you come with a gun, I do not have a duty to retreat. I can kill you. Uh, in, In simple, really layman's terms, obviously we're not lawyers or anything. This is what Wikipedia said. In Wisconsin and Guam, this also applies to your car. If you come in my car, I do not have a duty to retreat. I can kill you. Canada, there is no duty to retreat law anywhere. Canada's laws regarding self-defense are similar in nature to those of England as they center around the acts committed and whether or not those acts are considered reasonable in circumstances. Generally, where retreat is available in the circumstances, the decision to stand your ground is more likely to be unreasonable, but it is not necessarily illegal. The Czech Republic, there is no explicit stand your ground or castle doctrine. However, there is also no duty to retreat. England and Wales, they have stand your ground laws. You have to use reasonable force. There is no duty to retreat, and a person may use reasonable force against an attacker. Germany's law permits self-defense against an unlawful attack. If there's no other possible defense, uh, you can use deadly force without duty to retreat. Ireland, property owners or residents are entitled to defend themselves with force up to and including a lethal force. Any individual who uses force against a trespasser is not guilty of an offense if she or he honestly believes the trespasser was going to commit a criminal act that was a threat to life. Poland, stand your ground law applies to any kind of threat by attacker that endangers the victim's safety, health, or life. No obligation to retreat. And finally, Italy in 2019, the the Italian Senate passed a legitimate defense bill protecting the right to self-defense for private citizens of Italy. Uh, Anyways, don't do crimes. Should we? (laughs) We should rate it. Oh, Lord. Um, Criminal slash serial killer? He's hot. I I like the premise. It just falls flat. But I think that's more of an issue with writing than the guy. I think we should give him an okay score and then give the script writing a bad score. All right. Do you want to give him a 15? Yeah, let's give him a 15. Give him some legs to stand on. Character development, character arcs. Five? (sighs) 
Yes. All right. Forensics in context. Uh, uh, ooh, uh, five. Five, yeah. Okay. Script writing, three. Yes. Background characters, the prophet. Yay! Uh, I love Michael Kelly, but this was just not it. I love Forrest Whitaker, but like this is not it at all. This is very bad, but I think mostly it's the script writing. I mean, like, how can you cast Forrest Whitaker and fuck it up this badly? God, can we give him a 10? Michael Kelly, come on the podcast. Yeah, let's give him a 10. 38. Maybe we have a good episode next. <laughs> I don't even know. Um, well, guys, we appreciate your support. If you can help at all, we do have to start paying for Paramount Plus. So we know things are hard out there. But if you if you can help at all, if you can give us a five-star review, if you can, um, I don't know, tell your friends about us post about us on social media I don't know anything you can do um, would be amazing if you want to write into us there are links in the show notes you can follow us everywhere on Southern Podcast and follow me yournewapartment.tumblr.com and you can follow me at Between Stage and Screen Podcast on all streaming services and Instagram alright guys peace you have to say bye bye